Well, last week we found Abe coming back from Egypt. That was the first verse. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. And so this week we're going to see a renewal of his faith in the midst of a family trial. Look at verse 2. It says, Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. This was the common way of showing somebody's wealth in that day. You could say it's Abraham's portfolio. And so we know from chapter 12 that he came out of Ur of the Chaldeans and he probably had some wealth with him. He most assuredly inherited some from his father Terah when he died. And we saw last week that in spite of his sin, God blessed him with wealth. And so he comes back up from Egypt into the Negev. And he journeyed on from the Negev. And the Negev is just a a term that means south. And so on the map there, it was south of um, the Jordan River, south of the Dead Sea, and to the east there, to the west there. Got to get my never eat shredded wheat to the west there. And so he's going through the south. So if this is Egypt and this is Israel, he's coming up through the Negev. And it says he went as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. Abram returns home. Our forefather Abe goes back to where he once worshipped the Lord. He had gotten in trouble in Egypt and so he returns home. And what does he do there? Verse 4 says, to a place where he had made an altar at first. And Two weeks ago, we looked at what that altar meant. It wasn't just a little pile of rocks. If you were to walk up some of the trails here in the Eagle Valley, sometimes you see rocks as guideposts for people on the trails. It wasn't just a pile of rocks. It was a place where he boldly proclaimed his God. And so he goes back to that place, and it says he goes back to the place where he was at first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. And I want you to note that there are no altars in verses 10 through 20 of chapter 12. There are two mentions of the altars in 12, 1 through 9. And you'll see two mentions of altars today. But Abram had lost his voice in Egypt. So much so that God had to speak for him to Pharaoh. But he returned. He returned. The question is, what about us? What do we do when we find ourselves walking down that path of making a wrong decision? Do we continue and spiral making wrong decisions or do we return to the place at first? Do you remember, do I remember, do we remember that days when we first came to know Jesus, when there was passion, there was commitment, there was pure joy of knowing that the creator of the universe loved us and cared for us, sent his son to die for our sins. The question is, how are our affections for Jesus today? Perhaps you need to hear Jesus' words in Revelation that say, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love that you had, very similar language as Genesis at first. Remember, therefore, Jesus says, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. And so maybe some of us are here. Our, Our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is robust. My encouragement to you, praise the Lord. Press on. Maybe there's some of us who yearn like the psalmist that said, too long I've made my dwelling with those who hate peace. If this is me and you, if this is us, let's do what Abe did. We come home. We come home. And like Jason read earlier, God's mercies are new every morning. 
Now, don't read that hyper-literally and think like towards 11 p.m. his mercies have somehow tarnished, right? They're good. Well, just wait one more hour. They'll be new. No, his mercies are new every morning means God is always there to shower his mercy upon you. And when Abram comes back and he goes to the place where he had been at first and he called on the name of the Lord, you're going to see God give him wisdom and you're going to see God give him a view of eternity. And then we're introduced to another person. And there was Lot, verse 5, who went with Abram, who also had flocks and tents. No doubt, Lot probably got wealthy because of his uncle's generosity. And so here you have Abram, who's got wealth, and Lot, who's got wealth. And and 6 and 7 say, So much so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdmen of Lot's livestock. And at that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. And so the historical issue is that they were living, like you saw on the map, in Ai and Bethel, just on the other side of the mountain range, and were more dependent on the rain from heaven to water the land. And so it's Abram's wealth and Lot's wealth. They're mixing together. There's Canaanites and Perizzites who would once, who would then be enemies later on. They were living together and couldn't dwell together. And so there's this squabble. There's this conflict. There's this strife between them. That's the personal level. They were competing for sacred land. And so real quickly here, you can learn something about wealth. Wealth is not all it's cracked up to be. Prosperity can bring strife. Amen? We seem to think the more we have, the better off we'll be, but that's not always the case. And becoming wealthy and prosperous may bring strife. I mean, if my mother were to die today, my brother and I'd have to decide between the floral print sleeper sofa or the gigantic leather recliner. Now, being the unselfish guy that I am, I'd obviously let my brother have the sofa. No, in all seriousness, wealth isn't the answer to life problems. In fact, it could bring more problems. But you and I need to view problems through the lens of Scripture. And here's my first sub-point today. God allows strife to see if we'll live by faith. It's that simple. God allows strife. Just as he allowed adversity last week, he'll allow strife in the midst of prosperity here. He'll allow strife, whatever that looks like, to see if we'll live by faith. Is this how you and I view conflict? Is this how we approach it when we're in conflict with our spouse or with our children or with brothers and sisters in the church or neighbors or coworkers? Is this how we view it? That God's hand of providence is over that particular conflict? Do we see it as a means, an opportunity to grow in grace? Or do we think it's because maybe God's punishing us? I believe God allows racial tendency not racial tension, but relational tension, he allows it to see if we'll trust him in our turmoils. He allows strife to come in to see if we will trust him. So you're thinking, well, what what can we learn from this? What's going to happen now? Last week, when Abe was given an opportunity to glorify the Lord, he was coming upon some danger. He didn't do so well. Well, look how well he does now. 
We move from Abram's return and his worship of the Lord, and now that overflows into his resolve. Verse 8, it says, Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen. What's the reason? It says, For we are kinsmen. Literally in the Hebrew, it says, We are men, brothers. Now, Abram's brothers were Nahor and Haran. It wasn't Lot and their kinsmen, but Abram had been given the promises, and I think he's starting to realize this is something bigger than just my life. This is something God is working some big promises here. He goes back to the place where he once was, and he's reassured of those promises that God made him. He's got that big picture, that big kingdom mentality. And so he said, let us not be strife between us because... We're we're men, we're brothers, we're family, and we're living amongst these Canaanites and these Perizzites, and they don't don't know the Lord, and so we need to make peace here. You could say Abram was the first peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. He wasn't a peace faker. He He didn't pretend like nothing was going on. He just, you know, let's just carry on. He wasn't a peace breaker. He wasn't necessarily, when he saw first opportunity, he said, let's split it up. He was a peacemaker, and he would bring God's wisdom to the situation. So what does he do? In 9, he does something that is so countercultural, you could call it radical. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I'll go to the right. But if you take the right hand, then I'll go to the left. I believe the order is important here. Abraham returns and he worships the Lord. And that overflow of love that he has for God now spills out into how he relates with others. So much so that he does something that we didn't see last week. Last week, he thought of himself first. If you go back and you read the text, he says, Tell him you're my sister for my sake. Not trusting God with the promises he would give him. And he puts others in danger so much so that God had to come to the rescue. Yet God in his graciousness blessed him anyway. You could say that a Pauline phrase is that last week where Abe's sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And so we should say, well, should Abe continue to sin that grace might increase? May it never be. No way, Jose. Look what he does. He, he says, if you go to the left, I'll go to the right, and if you go to the the right, I'll go to the left. And he didn't have to. He was the older family member. The social customs of the day is that he could have said, I'm going to go this way, and Lot, you're going to go that way, and Lot would have had to follow him. But so secure was Abraham and God, he goes back to where he goes at first. It'd be like us going back to that day, when we remember that the Lord Jesus touched our hearts and we gave our lives over to him, we go back to that particular day and we remember and we reflect on, that's right, my life was in shambles and the Lord changed my heart and there was that zeal and then that zeal overflows and so as he reflects upon that, he says, first dibs, Lot. Jared, take the, take the gigantic leather couch. It's no big deal. See, he's the social superior, right? And he humbles himself and lets Lot make the choice. And that's what we're trying to develop in our children is this abundance mentality. God had promised to bless the world through him. And so Abram, so convinced of that, said, you've got first choice. 
And we're trying to teach our kids this, this abundance mentality. I believe they come from the womb with the word mine memorized. You'll see. Joshua will say mine. And he will want to deploy that in everything. He will grab and say mine. It's because he hasn't yet been taught. He hasn't yet learned that God is a big God. You'll see this in just a minute. And we got to live this way ourselves. That if we really believe that God is our provider, we'll be radical in our possessions. If we really believe that God is the one who is in charge of how much money we make, we'll be radical in how we give it away. Our faith in this God frees us to be radically generous. That is the big old Puritan word, magnanimous. There's a quote on the back of your outline there that says, the generosity and the peaceableness displayed by Abram on this occasion is applauded from one end of scripture to the other. Indeed, indeed, peacemaking and reconciliation are central to God's character as revealed in Christ. You could say when Abe offers this up to Lot, that long before the Proverbs stated it, long before Solomon wrote it, Abraham said the beginning of strife is, he didn't say this, but he lived it out, the beginning of strife is like the letting out of water, so quit the quarrel before it breaks out. You could see this countercultural thinking. He would have been opposite of the greedy man who stirs up strife, but the one who trusts in the Lord will be enriched. Abram put people over prosperity. He put peace over his own wealth. But this is not the case with Lot. Look at verse 10. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley was well watered. Everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, that's Eden. And like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was obviously, Moses puts this in there, this was obviously before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot lifts up his eyes. He lifts up his eyes. And so they're Ai and Bethel, and they're on this other side of this range. And Abram says, if you go left... I'll go right. If you if you go right, I'll go left. And he lifts up his eyes and he sees and he goes, that's what I want. He sees Cancun, right? He sees, he sees if it's like flying over Colorado right now and he sees those aspen trees turning, he says, that's what I want. And he lives by f- sight and not faith. He's driven by his fleshly pleasure and not by faith-filled principles. He could have said, note, he could have said, Uncle Abe, I, I, thank you. Thank you. But God's given you these promises, and I want to be involved in that. And so I, I'm, and you brought us back here, and we just got through worshiping, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust you with this. But he doesn't. Verse 11, so Lot chose for himself, all the Jordan Valley. And Lot journeyed east. They separated from each other. Abram was settled to do things God's way. Lot settled for the world. And God created it, and it's a beautiful world, but he settled not to follow God's promises, but to follow his own fleshly pleasures. And it said he chose for himself the Jordan Valley. 
And so they separate and people say, well, shouldn't they have separate? I mean, should they have separated? Well, sometimes that's necessary. Romans 12 says, if at all possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. And so sometimes you have to separate. Paul and Barnabas separated. Towards the end of his life, Paul says, bring me Mark. He is useful to me. But for a period of time, they saw fit to separate. And you see what Abram did. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. And now the men of Sodom were wicked. They were great sinners against the Lord. Lot settles for Sodom because from the outside looking in, this is beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Who wouldn't want to live here? But prosperity can be deceptive. What's full of life on the outside and from afar is deadly, and we will see that without getting too far ahead of ourselves, we will see that when Abram prays for his nephew in 18 and God rescues him in 19. It's deadly. It's deceptive. So much so that Lot, I don't even want to tell you that chapter yet. Now do I? Because Lot's going to take on the, the culture around him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, bad company ruins good morals, and you'll see that in a few weeks, six weeks, (laughs) but not Abe. Abe settles. He settles in the land. He's going to trust his God. Lot would be trapped by his flesh-driven decision. Abe, his faith-based decision kept him rooted, and you could say it was wisdom from above. It was peaceable. It was gentle. It was open to reason. He said, Lot, you, you choose. It was impartial and sincere, and you want to know what God thinks of this? 14 through 18, he gives Abe a taste, a peak of something bigger and broader than just a little piece of land. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, catch that, stop right there. This is God's confirming instruction, and it comes out after they had separated. I don't know how many times in my own life the Lord affirms my faith after I make a faith-based decision to live a certain way or do something. And it makes sense. If God was always telling us beforehand, this is what's going to happen, we wouldn't be living by faith. We'd be living by sight. He, He didn't come down into the frat house and say, here's the woman you get to marry. Here's the three kids that you're going to have. And here's the coolest church in one of the most beautiful places on earth. That's not what he said. There was an initial trust of, I I can't be doing this anymore. And I've got to start following God. And I think I want to learn the Bible more. And hello. Right? It was walking by faith. I didn't decide to go and and get underneath good teaching because I thought it would bring me a a wife and a family and and a great place to do ministry. Thank you very much. And I mean that. It comes after. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him. And yet he does the very same thing. He's so gracious. He said, lift your eyes. Lot lifted his eyes. Now Abe gets to lift his eyes. Our faith is not a blind faith. It's not. 
Some people say it is. It's not a blind faith. God is always willing to show us, even just give us glimpses of his glory. Lift your eyes and look. But he wants us to live by faith. And so after Abram had made this faithful decision, he says, lift your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward, for all that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring. God, by the way, is using legal language as if he's transferring the rights of the property from one party to another. Literally, he's saying, this is the land I own and I'm giving it to you. It'd be like a good father who was in New York taking his kids to FAO Schwartz and saying, I own this place. Have at it. And so he's saying, I own this place. It is yours. Look around. North. Where's north? That way? That way? North. South. East east and west. Look. Directionally challenged. I am not a pilot. Look. So the very thing that drove Lot is the thing that God was willing to bless Abram with. He says, look where you are and look what he says. I will give it to you and to your offspring just for a little bit, just for a season of life. That's not what it says. I will give it to you and to your offspring. What's it say? Forever. 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 Paul David Tripp has a book out on heaven called Forever. And in it, he has a great phrase. He says, the Bible, this Bible is an origin to destiny manual for living. Where we came from and where we're going. And I must submit to you that we do a really good job of battling for the beginning. We do a good job of defending creation. We can point out the flaws in evolution. Might I say we've dropped the ball a little bit? Not we in here because we teach the book of Revelation, right? But we've, as a church, have dropped the ball a little bit in talking about forever. How do I know? Because I see it in my own life and I see it in the life of many others. We're not, we're not longing for that day of Jesus. We get so caught up in the here and now. If we had that, what Paul Tripp calls destination mentality, that's where I'm headed. Well, what about this little strife going on here? Let's work on that because that God's... But that should help me. This is in light of eternity. This is nothing. We are just talking to Lauren today. In light of eternity, a hundred years is nothing. And so what drives us in our life, sometimes we don't have a forever mentality. We don't interpret life today as to what we see. Jesus is coming back and we're going to be with him forever. Okay, we can work this out think and I'm going to be there with you forever so we can work this out C.S. Lewis said if I find in myself a desire which no experience can satisfy 
I love this. I'd love to hear him say it in his British accent. The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And so God gives this promise to Abram right there and he lets him look at the land, but he extends it far beyond his eyes can see. And he says, I'll give it to you and to your offspring forever. And so Abe had a destination mentality. He would go building altars knowing something's coming. Not this this preparation, I've got to prepare because this is all life is right here. He lifted his eyes up. He saw and God said it's even further than that. It's for forever. And so living for another world means looking to the realities that we may not see. And he goes on and says, I I will make your offspring, by the way, Abe, as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can count the dust of the earth, your offspring will also be counted. Ever tried to do that? Ever been to the beach and you know today Ashley let's not walk the beach let's just count the grains of sand you don't even need to go to the beach you can just go up to Home Depot get your bag of playground playground sand pour it out and start counting it you're done in a minute right and God says can you count the dust of the earth that's how much I'm going to bless you And so for Abe, what was introduced in chapter 12 is becoming clearer. What was unimaginable, the land, he now gets a peek at it. And what was was intangible, well, the land was intangible, but this idea of blessing my offspring, he he gets a peek at it. You mean the dust of the earth? More than that? No way. So God is overwhelming Abe with his glory. God is overwhelming Abe with how great he is so that his faith would be strengthened. He worships the Lord that overflows in how he handles his relationship with Lot. And now the Lord just blesses him and says, forever, uncountable. And he says in 17, arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land I will give and I, for I will give it to you. Walk through the, the land. So convinced is God of his own promises. He's like, take a survey of the property. Walk through the land. And I wanted to read you, this is what Abe did. We're introduced to him in Hebrews 11 again, starting in verse 8. And it just talks about his life. And then in 13 it says, these all died in faith. This is what Jason read earlier not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, acknowledging they were strangers in the lands and exiles on the earth. And then that chapter ends with the most, in my opinion, two of the most profound verses in the Bible. And all of these, summarizing the entire Old Testament, though commanded through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us. Us. It's amazing. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. That's profound. These promises that God was giving to Abraham, we see, to some degree, more fully. Than him. We see the fulfillment of that. 
partially, not fully, but we're looking back on it going, what he said back, it's true. And there is a land, and they're fighting over it now, and one day all those that fighting will be done. You'll be settled. And I want you to notice one more phrase. Look at verse 15. For all that the that you see, I will give. And in 17, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give. I think those are the most important words in this story. God will give. That's grace language. That's I will give to you. I have the authority and the power and the ability and the mercy to give it to you. It's all about God's grace. It's always been about God's grace. This land, this offspring, it's because God would give it. And so God didn't have to clothe Adam and Eve. He didn't have to start a new beginning through Noah. He didn't have to choose some random guy from the Ur of the Chaldees and choose to bless the entire world through him. But he did. And he's done the same for you and I. I want you to see these verses. In John fifteen sixteen, it says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. And Paul said it like this in Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. God gave us salvation. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created. This is how we get a fuller picture than Abraham got, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I've given you the land, walk in it. He's saying, I've saved your soul. I've prepared good works for us, walk in them. God gave the promise to Abe and said, look, walk. And you and I, He fulfilled it in Jesus. And when he saved our souls, we now look back and we get to walk in the works that he's prepared. And so what should we do with this? We do what Abram did at the end of chapter 13, verse 18. Abram moved his tent and he came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Now you may be thinking, so so what we need to do is go to Walmart, get a Coleman tent, head up to Yeoman and make a rock altar. I mean, is that kind of the application for today? That'd be fun. We could do that. It'd be fun to do it as a church. But we don't need to walk, look at it hyper literally. I think the connections are to Paul. Paul said, walk by faith. Paul said in Romans 1, your life is a living sacrifice. Your bodies are a living sacrifice. Our life, just go and give your life away. We don't, we don't need to sacrifice anymore. That sacrifice has been done once for all. And so this passage, if you see it, it's bookended in verse 4 by an altar and in verse 18 by an altar. We worship when we've 
failed to trust the Lord, we come home and worship. And when we've trusted the Lord and he gives us glimpses into things we, unimaginable, we worship. And by the way, thus far up in this point in Genesis, worship has never been commanded, ever. It's just the natural overflow of a man in love with God. And so if we are overwhelmed, that's why he speaks in such uh, grandeur. I will give this to you and to your offspring forever. Can you count the dust of the earth? If anyone can count it, then they can count your offspring. It can't be done. And this gloriousness, if we are overwhelmed with God's glory, verses 3 and 4, it'll overflow in how we handle strife, verse 9 and 10. And we'll be confident, even if we never see the promises, we'll be confident to live faithfully to the end. Father, you've called us to something great, that we can see this side of the Bible being written, this side of the cross, the wonderful work that you are doing in the life of Abram. And we have, he got to peek at the palmresses. We've tasted them in Jesus. We've tasted and we've seen that the Lord is good. Lord, I pray that we would continue to return to that place at first, that we'd go back to the cross and we wouldn't just drive by, but we would park And we'd spend time reflecting on what you've done. And by that, our lives would overflow in love for others. And that we would go about each day knowing your mercies are new every morning with the wisdom you give us from above. And even if we never see radical, magnificent things happen, that we will be faithful to proclaim the gospel. And we'll see the slow work of the kingdom unfold. And Lord, I pray that you would give us all a forever mentality. That we would really, I I just pray this for myself, that I would really grab a mental picture and understanding that, that your son's coming back. And all rights will be wronged and there will be no more tears. And I would allow that forever thinking to, to guide how I live today. That when conflict comes, I'd see it from your perspective. And I would trust you. And I wouldn't buy into the world's definition of wealth. I'd see that everything you've given us in Christ Jesus, we have an abundance. And I pray the same for those who are listening. I pray the same for their hearts. Change us. Help us to see that looking at you will help us love others and leave a legacy. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.